You are listening to Digfin Vox. Digfin is an online media group covering the digital transformation of financial services. Our podcast comes to you twice a month from our base in Hong Kong, Asia's leading financial center, where East meets West and developed markets meet the emerging consumer. Go to our website, www.digfingroup.com, so you don't miss out on our in-depth daily stories on how your clients and competitors are changing their business models across asset management, banking, capital markets, and insurance. Your podcast host is James Lindsay, and this is the voice of tech innovation in finance. This is Digfin Fox. Welcome back to the Digfin Vox podcast. My name is James Lindsay, and I'm the commercial director at Digfin Group. Today, it is an absolute pleasure to speak with Ursula McCormick, partner at law firm Kingwood Mallison, about digital identity. Jamie and Ursula delve deep into the world of global digital identity and how people live their lives online. We answer the really important questions. What does digital identity really mean? Who ultimately owns it? What happens to your information and the crumbs of data that you leave all over the internet? How should it be governed and regulated? And how does this ultimately impact the financial services industry? Hi, this is James from Ditchfin, and welcome back to uh, Ditchfin Vox, our podcast series. Uh, with me today is Ursula McCormick. She is partner at King and Wood Mallisons here in Hong Kong, and they have been doing a lot of work in a number of areas that are r- relevant to the fintech uh, universe. But in particular, today we're going to talk about digital identity. Hi, James. Good to be here. Yeah. Um, so, uh, thank you for your time, Ursula. Um, when I think of identity, I think of it could be um, a credit card number that I give to a merchant. It could be uh, my telephone number that I give to a, an online service provider. Um, but I think now we're getting to a point where identity can mean all kinds of different things, uh, which is both exciting and confusing. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how uh, you are thinking about identity and, um, and when you deal with your, your clients in the, the financial services world. Um, you know, we can talk a little bit more in detail, but you know, give us a little overview of what, what is identity right now. Yeah. Well, look, I think the very first thing is uh, that digital identity is not new. Uh, we've been uh, using a form of digital identity in everything from online gaming and creating sort of avatars or characters that might layer on with different sorts of skins or other features um, for many years. Uh, and also we've got a digital profile through things like LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook that might be created and curated by ourselves. Mm-hmm. So my LinkedIn profile is something that I build. It's a form of digital identity that expresses me in digital format. Um, it could be entirely fake. So even Jesus has uh, a Twitter account. Right, okay. And this point around uh, digital identity becomes really important as we start to put more and more of our lives online. And why it matters to many of our clients and to financial institutions and big corporations is that over time, the need for that digital identity to be reliable becomes more and more important. And that's why we start to talk about verified data points and verified digital identity. What are we... So there's the the technology of how you create a verifiable identity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I guess there's the rules around who controls that and what you can do with it. Mm -hmm. Um, So why don't we start with the tech side first? Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people in the finance world, and I'm sure other uh, industries, are 
we're wishing for some sort of uh, like an EKYC or some sort of utility that allows uh, both for convenience and for security. Uh, where are we on, on that? Yeah. Okay. So we can create a digital identity in any number of ways. It can be a centralized database. It could be potentially a blockchain-based uh, solution that doesn't actually contain any personal data but contains uh, pointers to that data off-chain. So it can be incredibly complicated. It can be incredibly simple. Um, these days, the best thinking around uh, creating these sort of solutions is that to some degree, we want to be avoiding uh, creating honeypots of valuable data that can be hacked. Um, and that is uh, a really, uh, a very uh, significant sensitivity point, and that's why a number of digital identity solutions at government levels are struggling because um, of this uh, risk. And particularly as we start to create digital identity that contains not just passwords, names, uh, you know, preferences even, but it contains biometrics. So it's easy for me to apply for a new credit card number, but not so easy to uh, to change my retina or my fingerprint. Right. Or even with mobile phones, I mean, they can track like the way you walk, right? Exactly. And stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that's where the other um, uh, part about digital identity, the, the uh, organically developed digital identity that's built upon the crumbs that we leave on the internet and our search history, the connections we have with others that build a very rich uh, digital identity can, that can then be used for various other purposes. But look, on the to topic of uh, EKYC, the other, the other bit to it's a digital identities is that getting back to this point around verified data, because that's the that's the holy grail of sorts for for banks for onboarding that we create a rich verified golden source of data, and that's where we start to see connectivity into uh, things like Open API. Open API is really just the pipes of data that are now uh, enable a digital identity to become richer through through access to government databases, um, potentially corporate databases, so the flow of information to make that right. digital identity better. A, a lot of banks, well, some banks have been very aggressively building out APIs um, in, of course, in the European Union, it's, it's some sort of open banking, whatever that actually means, mm. uh, is, is mandatory. Uh, and it's, it's coming to Hong Kong and, and, and in some version will be in, in lots of places. So how, how prepared are banks or other, let's say, corporates in general for, for this uh, in the context of digital identity? I mean, yeah. are they, do they have the people, the resources and the imagination to understand how to protect and make good use of this data? Yeah. Well, the number one concern is around uh, liability. Uh, and uh, and so that can be dealt with either through a statutory framework, which um, we probably will not have in Hong Kong, uh, but we will have in places like Australia. So a statutory framework that makes it very clear as to where the responsibilities lie. Mm -hmm. That then gives industry participants certainty and then they can start to build. Um, in places like Hong Kong, it's likely to be much more on a contractual basis with perhaps an industry so more standard. Of a, a bilateral relationship. Exactly, exactly. And we'll start to see, um, you know, standards uh, build uh, around the issue and uh, to, 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 to help give that certainty that we have in statutory based regimes. But the readiness is a, is a, is a good point. You know, are we, are we exactly there to be able to leverage? this technology to its fullest potential? Absolutely not. The other point about this, of course, is reciprocity. So if banks are giving up valuable data to enable fintechs to grow, well, perhaps some of these valuable fintechs who have enormous amounts of information about us should also share. So the principle of reciprocity mm -hmm. is also important. 
How does that work? Because I, I guess traditionally when we talk about open API and open banking, the the assumption was that the banks were the were hoarding the data. Um, sometimes they didn't even know what they had in their own treasure chests, but there it was. Uh, and you know the poor little fintechs trying to disrupt, you know, and egged on by the customer to get. get but you know, from uh, from a reciprocity point of view, obviously some of these big technology companies are are hardly um, little startups anymore. So uh, how does that work? Who initiates the the call on a piece of data, and what's the link between who is identified as that data, and then who has control over where that data can go? Sure. So usually, uh, well, let's let's start with the statutory-based regime. In that case, uh, it's very clear in terms of who can participate and who uh, cannot, um, and then that's that's uh, that's governed by by that relationship. Otherwise, it's on a negotiated basis. But the important part of that, and it's the other thing that um, uh, most people worry about, is the consent element, and so the privacy and the data protection element, which is what uh, the average person you know does and should uh, worry about so how that data is used so you may well have a permissioning as between the two ends of that pipe but in terms of the downstream customers you have to be very clear that the customers themselves are happy for that data to go and not only are they happy for that data to go under some sort of fine print but they really understand how that's used so that we're we're avoiding a situation like we had um, are are we at risk of getting into a situation like if if i want to use facebook uh, or they change their terms of agreement, their TNCs, I'll get like this long list of legalese, which I'm pretty sure nobody ever reads, uh, yeah. except maybe you, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you've got litigation. Um, but otherwise, you know, for, for, for the ordinary person, for, for everybody really, you just clicked accept, yeah. right? I mean, some people are beginning to think they'll opt out of using social media, for example. But, yes. um, but taking that into, let's say, uh, a bank wants to work with a fintech to service loans to people. Um, and, of course, they, they might have an algorithm that determines this is uh, an acceptable offer, but is that based on trust? How do we know that? And more, most importantly, how do consumers end up having some kind of informed decision yeah. around this as opposed to having the Facebook solution where you get mountains of legalese and you just press accept because you can't be bothered. Well, you know, certainly. And then look, even even with the advent of GDPR, we have uh, much better disclosure around cookies. So you can go onto a website and you'll have this pop-up and you can manage your cookie preferences. Now, that's all well and good, but most of us just want to get to the site as quickly as possible. And so um, more often than not, people won't manage their cookies. They'll click OK and therefore give the maximum amount of information across over to, to, to the company. So there are mechanisms to make consent more effective that give give you the choice. Um, but whether or not that actually gels with user experience is another thing. Right. Whether we move to a model where the minimum is set may be a better approach. But I agree with you, we end up with a situation where we have the ins and the outs in terms of people who participate in the digital marketplace and those that try to start to exclude themselves from it because of that lack yeah. of trust. The other issue is the use. So um, in pricing insurance policies, for example, should an insurer be able to take into account what type of laptop that you're using or what type of street where you live to determine whether or not you're um, the sort of person who will shop around, whether you're the sort of person who's willing to pay a higher price. In some jurisdictions, that's illegal. Yeah. Um, i got two questions to follow up. First, going back a step, is uh, when... A consumer uh, or a customer, it could be a corporate as well, I suppose, um, gives permission for their data to be transferred or used. What kind of limits are there? Is there any kind of, 
you know, does the does the acceptor, the receiver of that mm. data, uh, have then infinite, indefinite control? Do they have access mm. to things that you may not have realized that you're also giving away when you give that consent? Or is it pretty clear it's one specific piece of data for one particular use? Yeah. Um, no, look, it's 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 certainly um, the, the former generally. You know, as a as a lawyer, I would say you make it as specific as you can, and you and you and you you know you cross your T's, you dot your eyes. Uh, but in reality, a lot of the time we describe uh, the uses in 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 you know descriptive terms that are open to interpretation. So if um, the privacy terms might say that uh, you know you know the use is uh, you know disclosed for outsourced service providers, well. It might not be very specific about what types of service providers, or perhaps um, you know how those might evolve from day one. That also ties into the kind of the purposes or the, how much data is collected on day one. Most jurisdictions say you shouldn't collect more data than you need. Most companies these days don't understand how much data they need, or they think that there might be a use for that in future. So right. these boundaries are by no means fixed. Yeah, from a legal point of view, and I'll get to my second question in a minute. But from a legal point of view. Um, are we in for a, let's see, what would be the best practice that, let's say, a, a bank or an insurance company should pursue if they want to um, have the right mix of good user experience, for, you know, reasonably frictionless, um, suitable product offering, and also not storing up a giant reputational legal fight in the future? Yeah. Well, the first one is, uh, you know, following privacy by design principles. So that comes down to the actual design of the product um, and thinking through how it might be used, uh, you know, in future. So, you know, that that whole element of, you know, having that built into the actual platform itself is one thing. Second one is plain language. So, um, you know, and that comes down to the size of the font and also really just looking at, you know, what is it that a person really needs to know? And so, you know, the average person will probably be comfortable that if they you know that there's if they need information about how you store data okay that's that's somewhere else but if there's something unusual about how you're going to use my data or if there's something that you think I should know about how you price your products then you will tell me the third thing is the opt out mechanism there's a really genuine ability to opt out or to reduce the amount of data that's collected about you um, we all know that the location services you know on our phones aren't necessarily that that, that sort of switch isn't going to turn everything off mm -hmm. and I think that's a real disconnect between expectations and design yeah. we shouldn't feel tricked about right. how our data is collected are there any international associations or bodies that could play the role of providing um, best pr principles or, or perhaps an audit of best practices to make sure that there you know there's some sort of incentive model for or uh, or guidelines for institutions to follow? Yeah, so look, I think that the privacy regulators themselves are starting to see um, a stronger role for themselves. It used to be kind of the, the sort of box you ticked in a compliance sense, but, you know, the, the privacy regulators themselves absolutely come into the fore. Um, institutions like and groups like the IEEE and the design of um, AI-related um, best practices and um, is, is another big institution. The fintech associations um, around the world, and I'll put in a plug for the Hong Kong one, um, but that they're great for for, uh, for 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 people to talk about best practice and advocate for it. Um, as to whether or not it's effective is another thing, and I think that's where 
having um, the you know stakeholders, advisors like myself, but actually talking about the issues. Um, we also see bodies like IOSCO, like the, uh, the 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 group of insurance regulators, starting to talk about these issues. Financial Stability Board, another another body. So at that transnational level, where you start to have at least an understanding of where the risks are. Um, then change can be advocated. So it's a very, um, like a, a very broad answer to yeah. your question, but really it's multifaceted. Yeah, uh, you've talked about Australia and Hong Kong, but in Singapore, um, we've got kind of a centralized digital identity that the government runs, uh, similar, I guess, to, to Adhar in India. Mm. Um, and maybe you can comment on sort of how that that version of doing this uh, plays in, and also. MAS, uh, during the Singapore FinTech Festival this past November, came up with a pretty basic uh, list of kind of ethical standards around yes. AI, which is not the exact same thing as digital identity, but I think there's a lot of overlap there. So maybe you can comment first on Singapore's model in terms of digital identity. Is that, mm. is that a pr- progressive and, and helpful one? Uh, and, and second, uh, the you know these ethical standards that the MAS is talking about and could that be uh, something that applies to this discussion? Sure. Okay. So, so on digital identity, I think what has been uh, a strength in the Singapore model has been the very significant government involvement in right. that in that in that um, uh, project, which lends uh, support from you know a practical standpoint, from a from a regulatory standpoint, but also a trust and confidence mm-hmm. um, standpoint. So that's that's certainly uh, you know I think a, a real strength um, there. Um, in terms of the principles relating to AI, very powerful because it's uh, it's it's across the industries that they regulate. So it's still the financial services industry, um, but starting to really set the scene on 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 standards. And what we see in other areas of regulation is that we often start with these principles. And then as, uh, as uh, we start to see, uh, you know, the iterations of the actual projects themselves, those principles can be hardwired into more concrete um, specifics. So algorithmic trading is another good example. We start with principles and then those principles become more specific. So I would say an excellent start. Where I think um, Asia as a, as a whole needs to go is the direction of looking at it across industries. So not just in the financial sector, not just in relation to insurance, but from the broader standpoint of, of the direction um, of AI. But um, as a start, absolutely yeah. um, fantastic. Would you, is, it, is it sort of siloed right now in that financial context? That's where it's really begun? Well, I think because the development has um, you know been in things like robo-advisory and um, uh, so in the asset management space and uh, even sort of in, in, in trading so it's an obvious it's yeah. an obvious start and there's an obvious downside risk so if the, if the algorithm uh, you know gets it wrong uh, there's a specific uh, financial uh, loss that right. you can point to what about um, digital identity AI ethics and the the fact that often uh, these machine, computers fail to recognize uh, say people of a certain color or an ethnicity um, you know, we all know the stories now about how uh, you know some of the personal assistants were spewing out racist garbage. Um, <laughs> from an identity perspective, being—I mean, just being able to identify that somebody is a person. Uh, you know, we've seen fails. Uh, Asian people have, have failed because they've been developed by, by Caucasian people in Western societies. Yeah. So, um, you know, is, is this a short-term problem that now we're aware of it? It'll get fixed. We'll feed the machines enough data uh, and examples to train them up, or um, 
or is there something going on here that we might be that might be dogging us uh, for for a while? Uh, yeah. Look, and this is where we have a, a sort of a collapse between experimentation and deployment. We're experimenting and we're deploying mm -hmm. at almost the same time. And um, you know, we have the issue of ba bad data that's feeding even good algorithms. So uh, you know, there's there's uh, data that was used to anticipate the survival rate of people in intensive care. And you do that for various reasons, including to work, work out how long you aim to resuscitate them. It found that it completely um, you know, misidentified the risk for Asian patients. So like you've said, it can be the data itself because it was based on the wrong uh, data set, um, just was, was a complete fail. And then you can have the algorithms that are wrong or that, that end up with um, not the results that you want. So right. where, uh, you know, algorithms look over CVs that have been and how they've been selected in the past, and then they create recreate the biases that we have in daily life. So they don't reflect where we want to be, they reflect where we are. So that's that's um, that's also an issue. So um, you're absolutely right. Um, this is a period of um, calibration in, in, in the way that we approach um, this. But the stakes are really high because as we start to move, okay, so we've got financial services, the pricing of things, uh, you know, that's one thing. But when we move into things like autonomous vehicles, uh, autonomous vehicles will need to make a choice as to who dies in an accident. Right. So when it starts to make value-based judgments... <laughs> Exactly. Can't be me, you cars. Exactly. Yes. So the stakes are high. So yeah. that's that's why we start to um, think more yeah. carefully about how that's all created. Um, the stakes are also high from, I guess, a uh, a fraud point of view. Um, we talked. You talked earlier about the fact that everyone's trying to kind of centralize the, the honeypots. Mm -hmm. I think you called it of of data, um, and we don't want Equifaxes around yeah. uh, Equifax type situations around hijacking my biometric data. Right. Correct. I mean, that's that's. Um, I guess since you're a lawyer, uh, how how advanced are discussions like that in terms of how to protect against that kind of uh, criminality? Yeah, or just, or just sloppiness. Yeah, no, certainly, and and sometimes it's some um, simple social engineering that will you know crack that sort of um, information. Um, so uh, yeah, absolutely an issue. Uh, one of the uh, areas of focus is on open API because then it's not centralized; it's still um, channels of data that are protected in the traditional. Um, way, um, but the other um, the other element that there's a lot of experimentation around um, uh, the use of blockchain, and the the theory around that is that sometimes I don't need to know your name or your date of birth to be able to conduct a transaction with you. I just right. need to know that you exist, and so perhaps there are systems that can enable us to do that to establish enough trust, but without necessarily sharing all that data. And that's where you know there was an interesting um, uh, case uh, here with the privacy commissioner where. Uh, an employee was complaining that their employer was using a retina scan to enable them to access their offices. They said, that's, that's over-collecting my data. You don't need that data. And in fact, the Privacy Commissioner found that they didn't even bother to lock the door. And so this you know, great, great commentary to say a, per, a lock would have done right. uh, what, you, what you were looking to do. So it's like, what is, what is it that we actually want to achieve? Yeah. And then what is the way that we can do that without creating these honeypots of data? Yeah. Because I think the blockchain thing is really interesting. You, you kind of talked about earlier when we were talking about um, how people leave their digital crumbs. Mm. We kind of spread it around. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, a like here, an email there, uh, whatever it is, or a retina somewhere. Um, and on the one hand, it seems that we don't want to centralize all our place, in one, all our data somewhere where it could get uh, lost or, or stolen. Um, 
and yet we're spreading it around so in so many places that maybe somebody very clever could figure it out uh, if they really wanted to target maybe a specific individual because you know we do leave our data around. Um, so it's you're kind of damned if you're centralized and you're doomed if you're decentralized. But is there a tech, is, is blockchain a potential solution in that it could that that spreading it around could be at least contained or locked in somehow? Yeah, and it's not so much the well. So there's the spreading out, which helps with things like fraud um, because it's harder to manipulate so many copies mm -hmm. of um, the register of information. But it's also using the cryptographic technology to secure uh, the the data and perhaps not having um, everything recorded on chain because that would actually make it impossible to uh, to actually right. use. But it's more the the sort of using hashing the point is so that you have the data somewhere else and that's important from a legal perspective because for privacy compliance I must be able to change data yeah. I might, must be able to potentially erase it so the the immutability of a blockchain uh, it can, can run counter it so the design has right. to match up right yeah, yeah okay and I guess it's too early to know how we're going to solve that conundrum between wanting to be able to the right to forget Yes. versus the immutability of uh, blockchain technology. Yeah, and look, that's where if you have the parcel of data somewhere else, you can always update that somewhere else. Yeah. Um, so, so that's still possible to do. Right. So the blockchain is not necessarily your vault. It's just where you would transact. That's where your, your hashes would run into one another, um, and, uh, but you could still change or remove your data somewhere else. But we, yeah, and we, use, we need a protocol for that. Well, exactly, and use really interesting, uh, uh, you know, technology to be able to help us identify each other to the extent we need to, and nothing more. And nothing more. Yeah. Okay. Mm. One last question I want to ask you. Mm. I, I, we were talking about um, insurance. Uh, you were talking yeah. about as an as an example, um, and you were talking about um, I guess scenario based insurance. Um, you know, someone fulfills a condition and they get a a, a, a discount. Uh, yep. on their, their premium or something. Um, as a lawyer, what are the fault lines between giving somebody a good deal because they are being a, a responsible, I don't know, a, a responsible driver or uh, responsible yeah. with their, their health, whatever, however that's defined, um, versus uh, penalizing people who um, have life choices that shouldn't be anybody else's business? Absolutely. Um, and this is where we run out of regulation quite quickly. So there's there's potential discounts. So there's various reasons you can't give someone a discount, you can't give it, you know, to bribe them or, or, or whatever. But generally speaking, where it's, uh, you know, as, as part of an incentive, um, you might be able to offer offer a discount. Um, there's also the, the upside. So this is the price optimization point where I might say, well, actually, you're a very responsible person. You don't shop around. You basically are stable. You haven't changed your job. You haven't changed your house in a while. So I'm actually going to charge you more. And that's where um, a, a lot of regulation has stepped in to say, actually, I cannot charge my premiums except on the basis of risk. Um, the last sort of overlay over the top of that is that insurance regulators are still keen to ensure that um, that pooling still exists so that we don't end up with a situation where the only people that we're insuring against a flood are people who live in the desert right? because that destroys the model fundamentally. Right. right. And is, it, is this something that you guys are working on as a law firm with your, your clients now, this pooling issue? Because I can see where you are identified as a, a, a good risk and therefore mm -hmm. then no one is going to charge you a lot for that, or you're not going to pay a lot for you that. Yeah. Um, but then the majority, perhaps, are not a good risk, but they end up paying much higher premiums, and then it, 
Yeah. Right. Well, a lot of or, these or issues... Or the insurance company gets it wrong and they've, they've, they've underpriced the, the risks. Yeah. Well, yeah, so so I would say in most of these issues, there's sort of discussions that we have around sort of next wave conduct. And so as, as insurance or financial institutions are thinking about their new lines of products and services, we're helping them to anticipate the next, next risks and how to balance the opportunities against those risks. Um, so a lot of that is discursive. Um, we haven't sort of necessarily, uh, it's not in nuts and bolts regulation or law, um, but that's where also a lot of, um, a lot of the uh, institutions that are at the forefront are participating in that dialogue with their regulators about that next wave of regulation. Can you give me maybe just one or two examples of what that next wave, either in terms of what the technology is doing or what the business models are doing, what are some early examples or maybe some harbingers of, of what's to come? Mm. Um, so uh, certainly strengthening of uh, data protection beyond just you know GDPR, but I think we will start to see a wave of star legislation um, in, in other jurisdictions, um, and that's, um, that's inevitable. Um, so that's, that's number one. Number two is this point around how uh, companies make decisions about me. Uh, how they make decisions about you. And this point around where we draw the line between our private lives, our public online lives, and then the products and services to which we have access. And that's where um, I think we'll start to see more more lines lines um, drawn. The Adha decision by the Supreme Court of India um, really lay, uh, you know, marked, marked um, the point at which that jurisdiction decided we are not going to be a surveillance state. Right, and, they, and that, that decision, just to make sure I got that right for, and everyone else in the audience, is that the Supreme Court basically said that, that Aadhaar data could not be used in open API for banking and other services. That's the, yeah, the general thrust. So it yeah. was really intended for, uh, you know, government, social welfare, that sort of thing. Um, it's not going to be something that everybody can mandatorily collect and therefore, um, you know, create this sort of um, centralised or, you know, this, this data point um, around everybody. So, but, you know, this is where it's really different in a number of just, you know, Australia for the longest time resisted a, uh, a an identity card for, just an, a card. Yeah. Um, whereas, uh, you know, play other places uh, that that idea of what we do at home um, impacting whether or not we can catch a train or whether or not we can we can buy an insurance product is perhaps less controversial. Yeah, okay. Well, um, I know I, for one, have no clue about where my data is <laughs> or, or what I've given away or how much it could potentially be worth if yeah. I was able to corral it into yeah. some sort of you know, app that I had some uh, well, sovereignty look, over. That's exactly it. So, you know, a number of um, you know, projects have also um, really focused on giving the, the, the idea of data sovereignty yeah. so that you understand where it is and yeah. permission it. Yeah, but, um, but it's... A, it's a fascinating world that we're moving into and one that's got some amazing potential to make our lives better. Um, but obviously we need to make sure that uh, the industry follows through in, a, in an ethical manner. Otherwise it will lead to uh, uh, being hauled in front of Congress and all kinds of nasty things. So, um, or, or in court with uh, King and Wood Mallisons on somebody's <laughs> side, maybe not yours. So uh, with that, Ursula, thank you so much for, uh, for speaking with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I'm James Lindsay, and when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the commercial director of Digital Group. If you enjoyed this podcast, please listen again and share it on social media so your friends can find it too.